0: Neil Koblitz is a professor of mathematics at the University of Washington, as well as an adjunct professor at the Center for Applied Cryptographic Research at the University of Waterloo. Koblitz received his undergraduate degree from Harvard University and received his PhD from Princeton University under Nicholas Katz. He is a world renowned mathematician, best known for having co-created elliptic curve cryptography or ECC in 1985, a technology that underpins many of the information systems that exist today, including Bitcoin and Ethereum. He was recently awarded the Lepchin Prize in Real-World Cryptography in 2021 for his work on ECC. He, along with his wife, run the Kovala Fund, a foundation that encourages and aids women in science and technology in developing countries. Thanks for taking the time to talk today, Professor.
1: Thank you. Thank you for your generous introduction.
0: I would love to start with the early life. So, you were born in the US, kind of went to India for a few years, then returned back to the US and kind of upstate New York. How did those three years in India, kind of a developing country, affect your worldview, motivations, and work ethic?
1: Well, it was actually one year, but it was a very sort of important year for me because I was just at an age, I was very young, I was like six years old, but I was old enough to see the extremes of poverty in India, which you know, I wasn't used to seeing and uh, had a big effect on me because, you know, I couldn't sort of rationalize it in a way. I couldn't understand it. Uh, And uh, that affected uh, my political um, activity later on. Uh, And in a way, my sort of progressive politics or leftist politics, whatever you want to call it, dates back that far. And so does my interest in mathematics because. The school i went to in india which was a catholic school quite strict and it had had good academic standards and so i learned more math there than i would have back in, in my school in the u.s so when i came back my teachers erroneously thought that i must be smart because you know i could do things that the other kids couldn't do but of course it was just because i i would had a very productive year in india learning a lot of math you know for that age and uh uh, you know, so she, so she, so she sent me up to. From, I was in the third grade. She sent me up to get the fifth grade textbook because I was so advanced. And of course, that that type of encouragement can help uh, can help send you in the direction of a, of a career in mathematics.
0: Hmm. So, so should should we try to emulate more aspects of that Catholic school in India? Did like were you working harder harder there, or are there any characteristics that can that can be transferred into, like, a more American education system?
1: Well, um, I I think, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, old-fashioned type teachers are not appreciated these days, you know, but they can be very good. You know, I think, you know, different teaching techniques can work for different teachers, and I've I've, uh, been involved, you know, helping out in various uh, I, I used to teach a course for several years for uh, math majors who want to go into high school teaching. And um, we went down to some to some middle schools, middle and high school teaching. And we went to some middle schools uh, downtown that, uh, where we helped work with teachers and sort of presented math enrichment material to, to the kids. And uh, that was really interesting. We learned a whole lot. We might have learned more than the kids from the experience, and uh, and it was uh, one thing that I, I got to appreciate was that sometimes sort of strict teachers who did not, were not like modern, up-to-date, sort of uh, the trendy things could be very good because they they, they could provide some, uh, some structure and stability and, and firmness with the kids, that the kids actually responded well to. And I think there's sort of a myth that um, if you're tough, uh, you know, uh, it's bad for the kids. But, um, you know, such a thing as tough love. And uh, and I think, at least in my case, the teachers who I'm most grateful for were pretty tough. And uh, and that's why I learned more from them. So maybe that's a sort of old-fashioned attitude. But I think... Uh, um, you know, often in other cultures you find in third world countries and uh, uh, other parts of the world, non-Western parts of the world, you find uh, that there's more of an appreciation for, for education. That is sort of the way ahead, you know, social mobility and improving the country and so on. Uh, it really depends on education. People appreciate it more. They're willing to work really hard. They go a tremendous sacrifice for their kids to get a good education. And I think America has a lot to learn from other countries.
0: For sure, for sure. Um, yeah, so so kind of reading over like your blog posts and parts of your autobiography, mm-hmm. it seems like you are very economics driven, actually, like frequently thinking in expected value terms and constantly thinking of ways to kind of increase your leverage kind of according to your autobiography, you realized from a young age that you would never that you would never be the best at math. Mm-hmm. You would never be the best at Russian, but you could perhaps kind of be the best at both. Like, how how else have you thought about kind of ways to increase leverage in, in your life?
1: Well, the way I would put it is, I, I think whatever somebody's ideals are, if they want to be effective, they've got to be pragmatic and realistic. And uh, um, you know, you can't do everything, and you can't. And sometimes sort of symbolic things really aren't worth that much. You know, people get really overexcited about things that really are not of that great practical importance. And they debate things that are really kind of uh, uh, much less important than other things that could be done. And so I don't know, you could call that economic or you could just call it pragmatism that um, I think a lot of times these days when people... Uh, talk about what they see as progressive politics. Um, a, a lot of cases it's not really doing anything. It's just sort of getting all excited about what words one uses or or what official statements one puts out, acknowledging this or acknowledging that or endorsing this slogan or that slogan. But um, very often people who are doing the most radical things are the most important things that are progressive are are not being so noisy about it, but are sort of working on some concrete project. And and I respect that a lot. And um, I'm not nearly as committed to that as many people I know, but but, but, um, when I do get involved in something, I try to make it something pragmatic.
0: Why is it, do you think, that the Soviet Union and more broadly Eastern Europe has been the home of, of, of many great number theorists and, and cryptographers?
1: Well, um, I, I think uh, there are a couple reasons. Uh, uh, Russia, even though in many ways was a backward country in the, in the 19th century in the czarist period, but even then they had some uh, really impressive intellectuals who uh, uh, aren't as well-known in the West as people like Darwin and so on, but so, some of the uh, people like Kropotkin and the, the Kovalevsky, the, the husband of Sofia Kovalevska, um, and, and many others whose names don't come to mind right now. Uh, Menchnikov, and they're just a whole bunch of really top scientists over there, even in the 19th century. And then in the Soviet period, was tremendous government support for the sciences. And they saw, it was actually on both sides. On so the U.S., there was much more support for uh, education and uh, and, and uh, much more of an impetus to uh, improve things during the Cold War period, during the space race, for example, back in the 1960s when I was a little kid. And we were all just so excited about, about uh, the first... Um, trips into space you know and uh, of course the soviet union did it first with the sputnik in 1957 and that really shocked people in the us because it showed that they were not really so far behind the us in in what they could accomplish uh, and in some ways were ahead and this shocked people and it was and so people talked about the sputnik era where there was a big impetus to train teachers better to have special programs i went to an nsf supported a government supported uh summer program for high school students um at what was then called san diego state college It's the only time when i was a kid that i came out to the west coast but um i spent the summer there and it was very helpful and so did you know many people in those days so there was a big enthusiasm about education not only in the soviet union but also in the u.s and was partly motivated by Cold War competition, you know, to be the first on the moon or the first to do first into into orbit. Um, and, and, you know, just, uh, Americans won some of these and Soviets won others. They were the first um, into orbit, the U.S. was first to the moon, so on. So, um, whether that was really that important or not is another question, but it had the symbolic value and it was supported by both governments. Partly for reasons of, or largely for reasons of prestige and uh, and uh, sort of power, just sort of the, uh, uh, this, this rivalry between the two countries. But it also meant that it was kind of one thing something that always interested me that um, the scientists and mathematicians had tremendous respect for each other. It was not really rivalry, uh, so much as as uh, wanting to. Uh, uh, have more contact with one another to keep, keep, to prevent the Cold War from standing in the way of scientific co- cooperation, collaboration. Um, and so for me, you know, I, I had a wonderful time over there, you know, and, and, uh, um, and the Soviet government was very friendly toward visiting scientists by and large, as, as long as, as long as we didn't do anything to, to anger them. Um, they, they, they did not regard us the way they regarded American diplomats, for example, or American journalists, who they didn't trust, any of them, but probably for good reason. But um, the academic people and you know, over, the scientists were, were treated well. I mean, you know, they, um, you know, and, uh, and of course, the, the Soviet scientists were very glad to see us and talk with us. And then, uh, you know, there were some really thrilling experience, or, or very weird experiences anyway, like uh, in 1985, um, I gave a talk at the Moscow Math Society. It was very unusual to have an American speak there, but the really weird thing was that my topic was cryptography. I had just become interested in cryptography then, just about a year before, so I didn't know a whole lot about it. But in the Soviet Union, there was no open work in cryptography at that time, no open research. It was old. Secret government control. And so nobody had ever given a talk about it before. And so, so, you know, a friend of mine, a mathematician, said, well, So, what exactly what you're working on? Why don't you talk about it? And he thought it would be actually very funny to have the first talk on cryptography ever given at the Moscow Mass Society given by an American of people, you know. So, because this was this top secret thing. And of course, I didn't know any secrets, but, um, but, uh, m- much later, I talked to someone uh, after the collapse of, uh, of the Soviet Union, this was about 2000, when I when I met someone who's quite a prominent researcher in cryptography, uh, who at that time, 1985, was was part of the KGB, which is the equivalent of the NSA here, and uh, and he said he went to my talk, you know, on behalf of the KGB, just to see what this American was going to say. And uh, I said, well, it was probably very boring for you because, you know, at that time I really didn't know that much cryptography, or at least, uh, you know, I knew somewhat about the purely mathematical part of it, but nothing practical that would be of interest to the KGB. He said, no, there is actually one thing toward the end of your talk which we did learn from. And it was something that was fairly well known in American cryptographic circles, very openly known, but apparently the, the Russians hadn't really, uh, for some reason, didn't know about this. And that was how you could use public key cryptography, which was still pretty new. It was about 10 years old then, um, to, to set up a system of where two mutually mistrustful countries, superpowers in this case, could install uh, a nuclear tests Detection devices like you know, like they use for earthquake seismographs of some sort, um, on the other one's territory in such a way that they could trust the data that they get from it, and yet the country where where the, these devices were planted would be able to verify that nothing uh, was going out of the machines that was not supposed to. In other words, they weren't being used for spying. So. Uh, it was a way to use public key cryptography to have the U.S. and the Soviet Union have uh, verify each other's adherence to nuclear test ban treaties, and it was just something that I'd heard because a uh, prominent American cryptographer at the time, Gus Simmons, had, had proposed this just as a you know thought experiment. See, this is one thing that sort of you don't usually think of that that uh, public cryptography can do and I mentioned this in my talk because I thought it would be a cool way to end a talk in the Soviet Union giving a way that cryptography could be used to strengthen mutual trust in the area of of, of test ban uh, verification you know because it's, uh, you, it's easier to agree on a treaty if you can if you know you can verify that the other side is adhering to it so, so it's a positive thing. It's not you know spy versus spy, but um, uh, so th- so this guy uh, who had been in the KGB at the time said he had known about that. Um, so I said that, w- that was pretty cool. So there was something of value in my talk after all, other than very sort of elementary basic things. But it was really a, a, you know for me at the time it was the most the talk I was most I've been most nervous about ever <laughs> because yeah. Because, you know, all the leading mathematicians or most of the leading mathematicians in Moscow went to the meeting went to the weekly meetings of of the Moscow Math Society and so to give a talk there you knew there'd be all sorts of very well-known people in attendance and so you didn't want to mess up. And also I I gave it in Russian which I knew pretty well then but I had to rehearse it very well, you know, because um, I wasn't completely fluent but I was Uh, I I certainly knew enough to to talk about mathematics, but then, of course, cryptography involved other things besides mathematics, so I had to be be careful and talk to some people in advance who gave me advice on how to give a good talk and this sort of thing. So it was really um, uh, an exciting but sort of nerve-wracking experience to give that sort of talk. And that was just one of the first things I did in cryptography, I mean, the first talk I ever gave probably in cryptography was at the Moscow Mass Society, which is also sort of bizarre, you know. <laughs> I certainly was not an expert at that
0: time. On the topic of cryptography, kind of more, more recently in 2014, uh, the Ethereum Foundation kind of announced a partnership between yourself to bring you on as a cryptographic advisor to the Ethereum project. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you describe your work with Ethereum Foundation and what did you think of Ethereum at the time?
1: Well, um, I had a lot of respect for uh, Vitali Buterin, uh, who started it all. Um, my collaborator in a lot of my uh, recent publications, named Alfred Menezes. He's um, a professor at the University of Waterloo. Uh, in fact, he's visiting Seattle right now. We often get together, or, or at least uh, collaborate online, and. Uh, uh, buttern was actually a, a student in his class. So, so he, he knows him personally. Um, I've never met him in person, but I had an email with him during this period. It was just, uh, really for a few months. Um, and it was before Ethereum even went public. It, uh, I think they went public maybe in the middle of 2014 and 2015. It was, it was something like, a, like that. Yeah. Months. It was a few months before they went public. And, uh, And so I was a sort of consultant and had email. Um, As I remember, I I just gave some sort of advice to Vitalik on on a couple issues that he knew that I knew something about. So like, I guess there were some rumors that the elliptic curve used in Bitcoin for the elliptic curve discrete discrete signature algorithm. Um, some people were questioning whether it was secure or they were sent, or, or maybe they were, it was also the period of time, I'm not sure exactly what the issue was, but it could have been related to this, to the Edward Snowden revelations, where it became clear that the NSA put in a back door into an elliptic curve version of a of a random bit generator. And uh, this was a big scandal of just uh, horrible news for people working cryptography, that, that NSA had successfully uh, sabotaged uh, uh, a standard for cryptography that 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 then um they also uh basically bribed rsa to 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 put it as a default in the be safe kit um and you know that whole story really sorted it was really unethical by nsa to do that and cause a lot of mistrust toward nsa but it also caused Skepticism about certain types of elliptic curve use of elliptic curves as well. Some people were saying, "Well, how do we know that they didn't put backdoor in other types of use of elliptic curves?" Um, I mean, if you know the details of how these systems work, you can see that there is a big difference between the the bit generator and other uses of elliptic curves. So, um, and in fact, even the designers of the of the of the uh, random bit generator knew that it could be backdoored and had warned about it but the warning was not uh, widely publicized and was not paid attention to and uh, nobody thought that i guess nobody thought that it was actually going to be done it was just sort of a theoretical possibility but it's also very easy to avoid that any backdoor if you're careful but people were not careful um, at that time and the snowden revelations basically uh, made it clear that, that there had been a backdoor, um, and uh, and so there, there there were questions being raised about either elliptic curve use, elliptic curve cryptography in general, or certain specific curves. And I basically reassured him that there's nothing particularly uh, uh, risky about uh, about the Bitcoin um, elliptic curve, and you know if he wanted to do something use something similar for Ethereum that I didn't think there was any valid reason to say you should choose a different to curve. Um, so I remember giving advice on that. Also, the other thing was that there was talk even then about uh, how proof of work is very bad for the environment, and it it also gives a bad public image to cryptocurrency. Um, you, you know, something that's socially harmful, and I said that I thought this was a big issue big, aside from the environment which is of course important to care about but just from the standpoint just the self-interest of ethereum I thought it was important to uh, to to move to to, to either well I, I wasn't thinking of proof of stake I, what I was thinking of which turned out not to be realistic and probably a stupid idea but what I was thinking of was finding a way to do some some work that to, to do computation that really needed to be done that would be like scientifically useful. Like there's some there are various projects that you probably know, you know, to uh, harness the public's computing power to do various things like uh, mapping the sky or folding proteins mm-hmm. or looking for dangerous asteroids or whatever it is. Uh, there are certain areas where so much computation has to be done that could be useful to just have millions of people uh, with the idle time, using the idle time on their own computer to, to help. And I even talked to somebody in the astronomy department at my university about about this, about these uh, some project that he was involved in, some sky mapping project. But certainly, I couldn't think of any practical way to do it because the the way that this is normally done, a proof of work, uh, you know, by these this uh, vast, vast uh, repetition of applying hash functions uh, until, you, 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 until you get an output that has, starts with a whole lot of zeros. Um, uh, the, the, the thing is about that, that, that it's very predictable how, how long it's going to take. And it's also, if you succeed, it can be verified immediately. Um, that, you know, once you have the input to the hash function to produce all these zeros, anybody can tell that it's, that you did it. Um, so it's a very efficient way to do this proof of work, if you, but it's also completely useless and burns up a huge amount of energy. So I, I, at the time, I was, you know, actively thinking of, of how you could um, do a proof of work where the work really was something useful. That's that's what I thought. I did not think of proof of stake, and I haven't worked on proof of stake. Although, you know, it's it's a little risky to to. Uh, to shift to something that uh, hasn't been time tested, so who knows? But um, but probably the idea that I was hoping for was completely impossible, or at least nobody would know how to how to do something that would fit into uh, would have all the features that you need for proof of work, and yet would be uh, beneficial scientifically. You know, so so that was just an idea I had that didn't go anywhere, but. Um, Later on, they—I uh, uh, didn't have a- any any real direct uh, involvement with them. Um, I briefly talked with this guy who split off from Ethereum to start what do they call it, Cardano or something.
0: Yeah, Charles Not Hoskinson. Another.
1: Yes, yeah, yeah. He contacted me, and he also he has his he math background, so mm-hmm. he talked with me for a while, but. Um, and I went to some video meeting with them and everything, but that never led to anything. So, so you know, I haven't been in touch with Ethereum s- since you know about 2015. But, uh, but I've heard a little. You know, I I've followed a little bit. Uh, but Buterin was uh, uh, recently interviewed at some length by the New York Times, and I listen to that he's a very articulate guy extremely smart and uh um and uh i you know so i i had a high opinion of ethereum relative to the other um uh, all these other cryptocurrencies that's come out um and and he he had a really original uh there was something fundamentally original about it that this idea of smart contracts um done on a blockchain it was it was really a very clever idea as far as i know he was he, he he was the first person maybe not the first person to think of it but the first person to to really uh try to implement it and to implement it successfully basically now i thought it was a fascinating idea you know um to, to, to do that to uh to to And that was the start of putting other things on the blockchain other than cryptocurrency. As far as I know, he, he was the first to really go big with an idea of something that was not primarily cryptocurrency on, on the blockchain. So, so it was impressive. He's a very sort of thoughtful guy. And he's also he's also pretty modest. I mean, he doesn't come off as being the least bit arrogant or self-promoting or, you know... Uh, which is also kind of unusual in the high tech world, in my, you know, in my observation.
0: Yeah, I I think I was able to talk to him for a little bit at the at the Stanford conference uh, a few a few months back, and he's definitely a very humble, very very intelligent yeah. guy for sure.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. Um. You've you've written a lot and been vocal about the U.S. uh, Vietnam relationship, kind of particularly Mm -hmm. on kind of university governance structures and kind of corruption across U.S. higher education. Mm -hmm. What are some kind of easy, low hanging fruit actions that schools can take to decrease administrative bloat and better align interests?
1: Okay, well, that's difficult because bureaucracy has become entrenched. It's sort of like asking what can be done to trim certain things in the government or in the military, especially. Um, and uh, uh, I, I think it's good to try to uh, reduce the power of, of the administration because the more powerful it is, the more it grows, You know, the more it increases its resources as opposed to students and faculty. Uh, and... Um, uh, you know, there's a lot, there are a lot of stereotypes about other countries being so bureaucratic. But in my observation, the U.S. Uh, US universities are the most bureaucratic universities in the world. Uh, and that's not necessarily their fault, because there's just more, uh, more universities are expected to do all sorts of things that universities are not expected to do in other countries. And they have all sorts of offices. They're supposed to Take care of students' psychological problems. They're supposed to have all sorts of uh, sort of government relations things and offices for just anything you could think of to promote ties with industry. Everything and a lot of things that are totally useless. Just uh, churning out paper. And uh, uh, even even the Soviets, who were known to be very bureaucratic, didn't have anything like that in their university system. Um, and like when uh, when I, I wrote an article about this, talking about um, uh, one of the things I talked about in my article, uh, criticizing American so-called advisors to Vietnam in the area of higher education. Basically, I said that, that we're not a good model for any country, least of all country in a relatively poor country, because. They can't afford a bloated bureaucracy such as we have. And in the course of my my article, I used the term provost, which is a standard term in the US for someone who's just underneath the the president of the university. And uh, my uh, colleague and friend in Vietnam, who's translating this article to Vietnamese for me, told me later that he had to invent a word in Vietnamese for it, because there's no word in Vietnamese for that level of bureaucracy. They just don't have that many levels, so uh, so he he translated something that roughly means super dean, you know, like a dean but a super dean or supervisor dean or something like that in Vietnamese. Um, and the Vietnamese are used to sort of inventing words to correspond to things that that uh, pop up in the West. But that was like a symbol for me of how. Um, Vietnam, although it has some problems with bureaucracy, but uh, they can't compete with the U.S. as far as bureaucracy at the university level. Um, but I, I think if it, it becomes harder with time at the faculty level, partly because an awful lot of faculty now are contingent faculty, that their they're uh, adjuncts or, or temporary people, or they're hired in purely teaching positions, not research positions, where they have a very high teaching load and in some cases don't have much job security, um, so they're not in much position, not, generally not unionized, not organized. So in uh, the research cadre are getting smaller, so faculty power is not going up. So power is sort of gradually shifting. Uh, and I don't think students have much power either. So, 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 so that makes it hard to deal with, you know, when the administration's entrenched like that. But I think we should at least be aware of the problem and we should, not, we should certainly not be holding our university system up as a model for other countries. Sometimes in these countries, you know, there's a sort of misunderstanding because they, they know about all sorts of impressive accomplishments out of the U.S., and they know the U.S. dominates many fields of technology and science and gets a huge proportion of the Nobel Prizes in scientific fields and so on. Um, but uh, they somehow think that, that must mean that Everything about education and universities in the U.S. must be really a great model to follow. And, uh, um, and and one of the things that I think is useful for Americans like me to do when we travel around is to disabuse people in other countries of that. Talk a little bit about the downside of, of education in the U.S. and tell them things that are really shocking. Because they never imagined going on in the U.S. Um, and... Uh, you know, like little vignettes, little stories can sometimes really shock people in other countries if they've never been to the U.S. About, like, you know, um, um, oh, something like uh, a, a calculus student many, many years ago um, complained about me because I, on a uh, an exam, like a midterm, in uh, in calculus. I assume they knew the formula for the area of the circle. I didn't give it to them on the exam. And just about anywhere else, they I say, "What? They're a university student taking first year calculus, and they're complaining because, as you assume, they know the area of a circle." You know, you know, in America, you know, they just would You know, it, it'd be very hard for them to digest that information. You know, that, that could, have, could happen in America. And there are many stories like that. When I was visiting Cuba. I showed a film that was made in the 1990s uh, sort of based on a study comparing U.S., Japanese, and German high school school and middle school level math. And and the most interesting part was uh, a video comparing showing like a typical 8th grade class in the U.S. and in Japan. And I'd spoken in Cuba about the deficiencies in american education which they knew nothing about they're sort of isolated and because of the hostility between the two countries you know they've never traveled to the u.s Uh, and of course they very much respect u.s science Uh, so uh so they probably weren't really sure whether they could believe me they might have thought i was just complaining about things in in the u.s in education and you know really it wasn't so bad so so i showed them this movie because you know, a picture is worth a thousand words, and I showed them compare. I showed them the two classes. Unfortunately, the, the the these, these uh, movies were were well done, and they, uh, they they had captions. And the Cubans, their their understanding of spoken American English would be pretty poor, but but uh, of course, the Japanese class had to have captions. But the, but the American class also had captions in English. Uh, which was really good because it would be very hard for non-English speakers to understand what's going on between teacher and students, uh, just from the voice. Uh, and the Cubans were just shocked. They, they no longer wondered about uh, because the Japanese uh, eighth grade class in geometry was far, far superior to the U.S. class. And this was a, a study done by Americans by a, an education researcher at UCLA was uh, Head investigator of the study, um, and it came out with results which were quite embarrassing to the U.S. And were widely publicized in the 1990s. Um, but but those the the comparison just between those two classes, like about a half hour in each class, um, were just shocking to uh, to mathematicians. I was showing this to human mathematicians, uh, you know, where the the Japanese class was creative, conceptual, a great rapport, clearly between the teacher and students it was also clearly not a wealthy school because the, the physical condition of the room wasn't so good at the desks and so on. So you could tell the way people were dressed and so on. It was not an elite school and neither was the American one, but the American one was just, you know, uh, the kids were, were distracted, not interested. The level was just, just based on repeating and memorizing and formulas and, and very little content. Um, in, uh, compared to the Japanese the Japanese were, were solving had the kids solving uh, clever problems and so on so uh, yeah uh, I, I, I think um, th- what happened in Vietnam was a particularly egregious example of Americans sort of arrogantly coming to a country they know very little about and telling them what to do and uh, despite the fact that Americans haven't yet figured out what to do in the area of education, you know? And, and the Vietnamese have, a, have a, and Vietnam, like China, and other, some other countries in the region, have strong traditions in mathematics-related areas. Um, and, uh, you know, but what they did during the Vietnam War, you know, they maintained their mathematical structure, they maintained their universities, even when they, they evacuated their universities Uh, Hanoi University was evacuated into the jungle when Hanoi was being bombed by the US Uh, and uh, so it was at a secret location in a jungle about 100 miles north of Hanoi Uh, and you know I I visited there once when I was visiting Hanoi it was really interesting to see see to hear some of the stories people told so uh, there's some really magnificent things in the history of mathematics in Vietnam uh so, uh so I was really bothered by the arrogance of these sort of U.S. university people who went over there, sort of administrators and politicians who, who thought that they, they knew better. And in one case, uh, one guy over there uh, who's head of the Fulbright office um, uh, wrote a, a really vicious attack on the education ministry of Vietnam based on his own ignorance of the subject. You know, and, and so I, I read a reputation of, of that. And, uh, and so it became uh, a, a bit of a bitter controversy um, uh, with, where the Vietnamese, um, you know, depending on their own personal take on things, would side with me or side with him. I don't know sort of uh, uh, a really heated debate. Um, so so uh, that, that that happened about, I guess, in 2009 is when my article, Refuting His Article, appeared. So that was kind of uh, a really interesting experience. But since I do feel that it is, it's one thing, for example, I, I only visited China once, just for a week, uh, and a uh, former PhD student of mine who's there um, arranged for me to, speak at the, uh, at the uh, to call the, the normal university, the, the teachers' university, the education university. Uh, and I talked about um, the problems in American education. And afterwards, uh, some of the, a couple of Chinese mathematicians told me that, that they agreed with what I said. They thought that, 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 that I was you know the, the view I gave of American education was correct. But uh, many of the, the uh, Chinese mathematicians had visited the West and, and even the US. And uh, they were in touch with people who taught in the US. And uh, they were very sort of internationally oriented people. But the education bureaucrats in China were not. So, so their, their worry was that there is this sort of move in China in the in education bureaucracy to sort of imitate US things because they thought that was sort of the modern thing to do. And a lot of the Chinese mathematicians least this is what I was told, sort of knew better. You know, they knew much more about the West than than these government people did and didn't have those illusions that China should be modeling its education system after the U.S. And I don't think they really do model it too much after the U.S., but uh, there is a tendency in many countries to, especially people who don't really know that much about the subject, to idealize U.S. and think that the U.S. Uh, they should imitate sort of U.S. ways of doing things and, and I don't think this makes sense at all.
0: Professor, it was a pleasure. Thank you for, for taking your time today. I really appreciate okay, it. Okay, well thank you, Ryan. Nice talking with you. Me too. Best of luck. Thank you.